FDCPA compliance report. That's the FDCA compliance report. It's sponsored by Advanced Compliance Solutions. You want to stop shop for all services, compliance related. Today I have with me James Tikios. James is a partner at Morrison Forrester. And James and his colleagues at the law firm put together a fabulous resource which he is going to tell us about in this podcast. It is the monthly top 10 international anti-corruption developments. And James visits with us about the December issue of this newsletter. Before going to Morrison Forrester, James worked in the fraud section of the FC and the FCPA unit uh, at the Department of Justice. He has a lot of great insights, and I think you will really enjoy this podcast. The episode comes in at just around 25 minutes. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, you are in for a real treat, but we have James Kukios from Morrison Forrester to talk about the firm's top 10 international anti-corruption developments for December 2016, specifically, and in general, talk about uh, his work at the firm, the firm's um, incredibly uh, talented section that deals with these types of uh, issues and their really invaluable monthly newsletter that focuses on the international aspects of anti-corruption development. So with that somewhat long-winded introduction, uh, James, uh, welcome. Thanks very much, Tom. Glad to be here. So James, you guys have been putting out this newsletter for, for some time now, and I was wondering if you could maybe uh, explain to the listeners um, how you guys came up with this idea and really what your focus is uh, trying to uh, achieve with this newsletter, because this is not a top 10 or top hits list. This is really a, a broader remit. Sure. Thanks, Tom. So Chuck and I, Chuck DeRoss and I together have over 12 years of combined experience in DOJ's FCPA unit. Uh, as most of your listeners probably know, Chuck was the deputy chief in charge of the FCPA unit for about four years. I was an assistant chief under Chuck for about two years. And after Chuck left, actually rose to become senior deputy chief of the fraud section and had within my portfolio the FCPA uh, unit. Uh, Chuck and I also tried several FCPA cases, each of us, and we also worked with the SEC, the OECD, um, other law enforcement uh, officials around the world um, on FCPA issues and, and related anti-corruption conventions and enforcement issues. Um, so we have a long experience in, in this field. Um, a couple of years ago, both of us found our way to Morrison Forrester, Chuck, about three years ago, and then I joined him about a year later, um, celebrating my two-year anniversary coming up pretty soon. Um, but we never really – obviously, our practice still still involves anti-corruption as well as other uh, white-collar matters, but you know, we never really got that interest of, of that international aspect out of our blood. We, we read the blogs. We read the trade journals. We have our own news feeds from every continent, uh, except for Antarctica, of course. Uh, about uh, anti-corruption developments around the world. Um, and it takes a long time for us to read those. Uh, frankly, we read them probably more more articles and, and more in-depth than most people need to. I think it's safe to say that, frankly speaking, we're, we're kind of FCPA and anti-corruption nerds. So what we try to do is we try to uh, isolate out of all those things that we read and talk about what we think are the, the 10 most important developments for each month. And then drawing on our experience working in the FCPA unit um, explain why we think those things are important. So the idea is to kind of distill all that information, 
provide a relatively quick but comprehensive newsletter that busy in-house counsel and compliance professionals can read between meetings, uh, on the train to work, whatever it may be, maybe print out, um, and they don't have to read all the source material. But we also try to put in there, uh, and I think you'll see if you take a look at it, we put a lot of links to primary source materials. So if people do want to go into a little more depth on a particular issue, if something strikes their fancy or they want to uh, read more about it, we actually link to the primary sources, whether it be an FCPA enforcement action, uh, a foreign law, or an article about some de developments going on. In terms of content, I mean, as you'd expect, we, we have a heavy focus on DOJ and SEC because uh, the U.S. is still the leading law enforcer in when it comes to an international anti-corruption. But we do try to hit every region, and we try to highlight things uh, uh, of particular importance for multinational companies. So, for example, if there's a, a big anti-corruption push going on in Brazil, as most of your listeners know, or in China, as most of your listeners know, we'll try to draw out some of those facts as well so that multinational companies uh, can be apprised also of things going on um, around the world that might be of interest to them. I also wanted to mention, Tom, if I could for a moment, uh, you mentioned our bench, and I and appreciate that. Um, we, After a couple of years of doing this, um, Chuck and I realized that it was a really probably a good idea to start getting more and more people involved in helping us put this together. So we've really been bringing our associates into this more and more to get them to read what we read and to explain to them why we think these things are important so they can start to internalize the lessons that we learned and really help us put out a, a very timely and comprehensive product. So James, really from my perspective, what, what I find not only so unique about this newsletter, but also frankly so helpful is the trend I've seen is for a globalization of not simply anti-corruption investigations, but towards the end of last year or, or towards uh, in last year and into this year, a trend towards global enforcement of anti-corruption led by the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission, but certainly including some of your former colleagues across the globe. So this really, to me, provides an invaluable resource to talk about the uh, global aspect of anti-corruption investigations and enforcement. So uh, with that, um, I think most of uh, my listeners are going to be pretty well aware of a couple of the big FCPA cases that happened in December. So I really don't want to focus on those. But you've got some other uh, things in here, uh, items and events that I thought were uh, didn't make as much play, but are uh, somewhat uh, or equally interesting. And one of them is uh, starts with South America Sports Marketing Company resolves FCPA bribery charges. And this evolved out of the FIFA uh, scandal, and we've really seen um, a lot of ancillary cases coming out, out of that. I was wondering if you could touch on that one. Sure, Tom. That's a great point that you, that you raised about the globalization of the um, international anti-corruption enforcement, and I think the FIFA case is a good example because I'm sure most of your listeners know um, many countries were involved in that effort. Um, Switzerland, for example, very famously assisted in extraditing some of the defendants there. Um, but I, I found it very striking when the FIFA case first came out, I was actually on a business trip to Japan, and I think it really struck home two things. Uh, number one, I'm, I'm an American guy from the Midwest, big you know, American football fan. Number one, it struck me how important um, the other kind of football is to the rest of the world and how much uh, interest this case uh, immediately garnered. Folks in Japan were, were asking me questions about it every day about this. Uh, but number two is I, I think a very important thing that – is illustrated by the FIFA investigation is the broad scope of U.S. anti-corruption laws 
besides the FCPA, uh, because most of the charges in the FIFA case have been money laundering or wire fraud. Uh, and so I got a lot of questions also about that. You know, what, what, how is it that the U.S. is able to to um, get non-foreign officials, non-foreign official bribery uh, that involves Central America and South America? How does how does the U.S. reach that? And I think that the FIFA cases are very important to illustrate that point. Uh, in this particular case, uh, this was a South American company that had allegedly paid bribes to FIFA itself, as well as other soccer associations, to gain broadcasting and marketing rights to various tournaments, including the broadcast rights for the 2018, 22, 26, and 30 FIFA World Cups. And I think it's a, it's a good um, resolution for people to read to see exactly how the U.S. is able to, to reach conduct that really has uh, quite a global impact and as well as a local impact in South America. Um, long story short, some of the activities actually did play, take place in the United States, uh, but it shows how conspiracy and wire fraud can expand, even if it's uh, just a little bit of activity in the United States that crosses U.S. Um, international borders, uh, can, can really sweep in a lot of conduct. So and let me pick up on the point you uh, started with about being in Japan and recognizing really the global impact of what they would call football or we might call soccer and contrasted a little bit with uh, two weeks after the initial indictments came down, I was in England for my sister-in-law's wedding. And at the wedding reception, several of my wife's cousins kind of pigeonholed me and, and peppered me with questions about the, the FIFA indictments. But what struck me was that their attitude was that, thank God the Americans did this because no one else was big enough to stand up to FIFA. And what it really demonstrated to me was the rest of the world looks to America for, in many ways, anti-corruption leadership, not just utilizing the FCPA, but as you articulated, uh, the full panoply of U.S. laws against corruption and fraud, and that uh, even in England, with uh, folks who might gingerly be called not really fans of America generally, uh, they look to America to lead uh, that effort for both investigations and enforcement. It's a good point, Tom. And I think the ironic thing here is for, for years, we were kind of criticized for being the world's policemen. But when it came to football, which people really cared about, uh, but felt sort of powerless to stop, uh, the American involvement was actually very welcomed in that and not really questioned. I think other than on a sort of theoretical basis for companies saying, you know, how could that happen to me as well? Um, but I think that it's a very good point. This time, the uh, U.S. intervention in, in world football was welcomed with open arms. James, let me turn to another one, and I know I'm going to butcher this guy's name, but it's a fellow who is the son of a late Gabonese prime minister, pled guilty uh, to um, bribery uh, around the Oxif case, and his name is, and this is what I'm going to butcher, Samuel uh, Mebami. Uh, that's as close as I'm going to get with my Texan. Um, <laughs> but we had we had a, a really someone who appeared to think he was above the law, and certainly was very arrogant. I think in uh, the the public statements he made about what he did in Africa and how he went about doing it for Oxif. So uh, what were your thoughts on this gentleman? I think uh, the Mebiami, that's how I'm going to say it with my Midwestern okay. accent. Uh, <laughs> the Mebiami case is a good illustration, again, of uh, the the risk that companies have in dealing with third-party intermediaries. 
Mr. Mebiani was hired to be sort of a go-between, allegedly between uh, a, a company that involved, among others, Oxif and others to try to get mining rights in Africa. And again, it, I mean, the, the minute I got to the fraud section in 2009 and started working on FCPA cases, uh, it became clear to me, crystal clear to me, because all my cases involved it practically, uh, the enhanced risk of third-party agents and consultants. Um, so I think this is uh, uh, just another example of the, the third-party risk. I think another thing that it shows, and I think a lot of the other ones we're going to talk about in, in a bit, are the fact that DOJ has and continues both pre-Yates memo and post-Yates memo uh, to pursue individuals at all stages of the bribery um, spectrum, both from bribe payers to intermediaries to officials. And then the next uh, case on your list, entitled uh, Former African Mining Minister Charged with Receiving and Laundering Millions of Dollars in Bribes from Chinese Companies, I was really gratified uh, to read about this one because it took an individual who had basically stolen money from his country, uh, was did not come from a U.S. company, so no FCPA angle, yet um, he was arrested in New York for uh, money laundering and accepting the proceeds and shows really, once again, to your point, that there's a wide variety of tools that the Department of Justice can utilize in the fight against global corruption. And here was a, a great case. I think that's right. And that's uh, when I was talking about all sides of the continuum, Tom, I think this was a great example. This um, really shows that the U.S. will pursue cases on the demand side of foreign bribery. That is um, the official side of, of foreign bribery. Now, as most of your listeners probably know, but some people are kind of surprised about, the FCPA does not actually reach foreign officials, so you cannot charge a foreign official with violating the FCPA. However, in several um, cases, and they're, they're usually picked for a specific reason, which I'll get into in a moment, uh, DOJ has brought cases against the foreign officials who have received the, the bribes. In fact, I actually tried one of those cases against John Rene Duperval, who was accused of receiving money from several Miami telecom companies. Uh, he was a, a Haitian official, an official of the Haitian state telecom company, who allegedly, and we proved a trial, received money from two Miami telecom companies to give them various benefits. Uh, the common theme that tends to run through these cases when DOJ goes after a foreign official is that the money was actually laundered in the United States. That was certainly true of the Duperval case, where much of the money was laundered in South Florida. And if you take a look at the facts of the uh, Chum case, I believe that's how you pronounce it, um, he was paid in Hong Kong, but then he transferred a substantial portion of the funds into the United States where he, uh, where he lived and therefore laundered funds in the United States using the U.S. bank system, um, buying U.S. property, and otherwise affecting the United States. And, and that really is when DOJ decides to go after the demand side of bribery, they tend to not just go after um, any official, but an official who's actually the conduct has directly impacted the United States. So uh, if, I'd if I could go across the pond to our uh, colleagues or your former colleagues, I should say, the Serious Fraud Office, and they had a UK executive jailed for destroying evidence, uh, not under a, a Bribery Act case, because I think it preceded the Bribery Act, but nevertheless for a bribery and corruption case in the United Kingdom involving a sweet group uh, executive. Could you tell us about that and the significance for the U.S. listeners? 
Sure. Actually, the Sweet Group actually did plead guilty to an offense under Section 7 of the UK Bribery Act um, back in December of 2015. Um, I think the, the most important thing to take out of this is that the Serious Fraud Office um, has been and continues to be an increasingly important player in the realm of international anti-corruption enforcement. Um, you know, going back to the days of the, the OECD um, evaluation where the UK was really grilled and criticized quite harshly for their, um, the inadequacy, as the OECD saw it, of their then current foreign bribery law uh, and their lack enforcement uh, of that law, um, which led to the, the UK Bribery Act, which is many people regard as one of the, the most sweeping and encompassing anti-corruption laws in the world, and the SFO become very much more active in this field. And I think one really important point to draw from the Kingston case is that not only is the SFO bringing more cases, but they're winning more cases. Uh, you know, they had gone through a period where they had some growing pains, as I think all agencies do, but they actually have very quietly put together a very successful run of both, both corporate and individual prosecutions. And even though they don't have the Yates memo over there, I think it's also important to show that the SFO is sort of following that same theory of going after not only companies, but also individuals, and taking those individuals to trial when necessary and having good results. They don't always win, neither did DOJ, uh, but I think it shows the sophistication and maturity of the SFO and the fact that they're a major player in this realm. And James, I'd like to end with a uh, resolution of a case uh, that utilized the FCPA, uh, I thought, in a unique way, certainly in not a way I'd seen utilized with a domestic case, excuse me, domestic company previously, and that was a resolution of allegations against uh, United Airlines, where the uh, it seemed to me that the Securities and Exchange Commission and previously the DOJ had taken the uh, an approach that companies' code of conduct could be an internal control, and if the internal control was violated without sufficient oversight or review by an appropriately uh, uh, high-level executive or board, that that could be the basis of a violation under the FCPA internal controls provisions. Uh, if I've got that right in your mind, could you maybe just articulate on the legal theory? Sure. It's a very interesting theory. Um, the accounting provisions of the FCPA, as you, of course, know very well, Tom, and I'm sure many of your listeners do, um, the accounting provisions, Title 15, United States Code, Section 78M, uh, which require publicly traded companies to keep and maintain accurate books and records and to devise and maintain a system of internal accounting controls, um, was enacted as part of the FCPA, but is not by its terms limited to the FCPA. So in recent years, we've seen things like, for example, the SEC bring accounting charges um, to get after conduct that involved sanctions violations or commercial bribery. And DOJ domestically used 78M back in the days of the backdating uh, stock options cases involving some of the tech companies. Um, but what we've not really seen very much, and, and I'm with you, Tom, I don't really know another instance where this happened, is that the SEC in this case actually used the FCPA's accounting provisions to go after what they alleged was domestic bribery. Now, it's interesting, the, the facts of the case, um, as detailed in, in some of the admissions and things like that from, from the company, uh, show, long story short, that the, the airline 
wanted to do some improvements at the Newark airport. Uh, the Port Authority uh, chairman who, who is um, then the Port Authority has jurisdiction over the Newark airport basically wanted to get a, um, according to the allegations, wanted to get a route that would operate between the Newark airport and South Carolina where he had a home. And so basically the allegation goes in order to get support for those improvements at the Newark airport, uh, the company agreed to reinstate a route that was otherwise unprofitable to get that um, to, to get that uh, benefit. Um, those are the kind of facts. If you saw those happen overseas, um, I think those would probably um, potentially amount, assuming other jurisdictional issues are met and things like that, could amount to an FCPA violation. Um, of course, couldn't be an FCPA violation here because the official is not a foreign official. But the SEC still used the accounting provisions to go after this behavior. Uh, I think it's very interesting. Uh, obviously, DOJ all the time brings charges against companies and individuals for domestic bribery in the United States. They typically use wire fraud or something like that. Uh, and this is a potentially very significant uh, entree uh, for the SEC into the domestic bribery realm by using the tools that are available to them, in this case, the accounting provisions of the FCPA. Now, this may be sui generis. Maybe this is just for whatever reason they were interested in this case. Uh, maybe we shouldn't read too much into it, but I'm with you, Tom. I think this is very unique. Um, there's no natural limit to this. I mean, if they used it here, there's no reason why they couldn't use it for other domestic bribery situations or alleged domestic bribery situations. Uh, so I think it's a very important case for people to think about in terms of how the SEC could expand its enforcement uh, program and to keep tracks on whether they indeed do do that again. Well, James, unfortunately, we're near the uh, end of our time, but I was wondering if uh, any of my listeners wanted to contact you, if they could email you, and if so, how would they do that? Sure, that'd be great. My email address is jkoukios, that's J-K-O-U-K-I-O-S, at mofo, which is short for morrisonforster.com. James, uh, thank you very much. I hope we can make this at least a, um, a monthly event because this is an incredible resource, the newsletter you put out, and one that uh, I hope more people will take advantage of. I appreciate the kind words, Tom, and I look forward to it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us as it would help our rankings and help get the word out about the FCPA Compliance Report. Also, if you have any questions you'd like answered in a mailbag episode, please email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you'll turn in tomorrow, uh, turn in, tune in again for the next episode of the FCPA Compliance. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.